Welcome back to Worst Seats in the House. Michael Russo, Anthony LaPanta. Anthony's coming to you from Bally Sports North Studios, where he just completed uh, Twins uh, Live. Uh, Anthony, so the, the doorbell rings today, and it, it's about 3.30, about 20 minutes after the Fiala news breaks, and the UPS driver, I open it up, it's UPS driver delivering all this wine that I had sitting at probably at their warehouse since for like the last month. And he just goes, I know you can't uh, take long, but I need for you to sign this. And so he right away was showing me that he uh, knew exactly uh, who I was and that my phone was blowing up. And I quickly signed for it. And then he just asked me, I just one question. You think it's a good trade or a bad trade? So what is your answer to that question? Good trade or bad trade? Kevin Fiala for first round pick and Brock Faber. Well, I've been asked the same question a number of times today as well. And just I walked down to Lund's after our pregame show to grab some dinner and had a guy grab me as I was making my salad at the salad bar and said, don't want to interrupt. Don't want to bother you making your dinner. Got to know, do you think they got enough for Fiala? And coffee, I went to the coffee shop and got asked the same question there. It's This is the question everybody will be asking. And, and any time you make a deal like this, you really, you don't know for a while. We don't know until we find out what kind of a player Brock Faber is. You don't know until you realize what happens with the draft pick. But I think in general terms, heading into this negotiation, I felt like Fiala had done enough to warrant two pieces, two high-end pieces, number one draft pick and a prospect that was at a number one draft pick type of level. And I think when you go into these kind of negotiations, that's what you're always thinking. I mean, that's what I thought the Wild didn't get when they traded Granlin for Fiala. They should have gotten Fiala and another piece. Randall was the proven player. Fiala was not. But I think in this case, it was so different because everybody in the league basically knew that Billy Guerin had to move the player. And so I was worried. I really thought, the mar- what if the market dictates that all they get is one piece? And that would be too bad to have a guy who would put up the kind of numbers Fiala did and only get one piece for him. So I think the fact that they got these two pieces, they're essentially – number one pick level pieces, and now we'll just wait to see if they play out. I, I, I think it's about as good as you could have hoped in this situation. I think, um, you know, first of all, I give Fiala credit. This guy wanted to get paid. He proved it to him the last two negotiations. They were all, they were difficult ones, um, really the last three, um, and um, he got paid. Uh, he bet on himself. He wanted long-term money at big-time money last summer. The Wild weren't able to give it to him. They brought him to arbitration. They signed him the one-year deal at 5-3. He probably thought he was vastly underpaid. He got off to an atrocious start last year, not even just a bad couple weeks. We're talking about a bad couple months. And then he just absolutely caught fire and finishes with the second-best uh, point total in wild history, only second-best because uh, Kirill Kaprizov had 108. So he goes into this. Um, they obviously get the deal done with L.A. I think he dictated probably where he wanted to go. Um, that allowed Newport, his agents, to work on a deal with with um, L.A. And I don't know if you saw, he's going to get paid 7.9 a year, a little sh- shade higher, over a seven-year stretch. So he uh, bet on himself, and he absolutely won. From the Wilds' perspective, Anthony, to your point, um, the, the one thing that surprised me in this is I always thought they were going to get a first-round pick and a prospect. I thought mate, moving him to the East, where he couldn't bite you, game after game and be a t- uh, play for a team that could contend with you for a playoff spot. I thought that made sense to send him to the East. but And I thought that maybe, maybe getting a forward from the Kings or a forward from the Devils or, or the, the uh, Senators made the most sense. But from Brock Faber's perspective, there's two things here. And not to now start another whole can of worms, because finally, for the first time in a year and a half, we're not going to have to talk about Kevin Fiala on every podcast. But I think that the the fact that the Wild were able to were, were de- decided to go add that defenseman on an already deep pool of prospects that are blue liners, that is a right shot defenseman, just signals that they are keeping themselves some insurance if they don't bring back Matt Dumba after this upcoming season. And that's everything no, from I'm hearing from all sorts of sources here. And so I think that they, they just decided that, you know what, if Kalen Addison's not the guy, you add now Brock Faber to the mix somebody that has been unbelievable playing for the United States in the World Juniors, now basically uh, one-and-a-half tournaments, and he's going to play again later this this summer. 
and in the Olympics. And as good as he was for the University of Minnesota last year, finishing as Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year, I think that shows you that they look at him as being somebody that's very close to the NHL and is Matt Dumba replacement insurance. Well, I think that might be true, and we can get more into that in a, in a bit. I, I Let's just talk about the trade in general first. I think you're exactly right. Fiala bet on himself, and he won, and good for him. And certainly had the ability to maybe not dictate where he was going to go, but he could, because of the fact that nobody was going to give Billy what he wanted in return unless they knew they could re-sign Fiala, mm-hmm. that I think is what the point you're making where he had he had some say in this because if yes. – Billy says, hey, New Jersey's interested, and Fiala says, I refuse to negotiate with New Jersey. Well, that ends that discussion in a heartbeat. So, And it could have happened. He has, it could have happened. It may have happened. Yep. We don't know that. But but I, I just think from a Minnesota perspective, don't you think that the fact that they still got the two pieces, even in yep. a spot where teams could have really just held a gun to their head and said, look, all we're giving you is a number one pick or a top prospect, but not both – because what else are you going to do? You can't keep them. We all can do the math. You'd have to trade three guys. And you know that's part of what we had talked about for months was that there were other ways to do this, but it would require moving two or three different guys. And it just, as Billy said today, that that was difficult. So I really, I, as soon as I saw the, actually I saw it with your tweet and I thought, wow, if he ended up, if that's what the deal is, I think that's a really good deal for the Wild based on the fact that the market could have turned upside down against them. And it's not the, the, the first time that Bill Guerin has done that. I remember with the Jack McBain negotiations, when I started hearing from sources that the Wild were trying to get a second-round pick for his rights, I rolled my eyes and laughed out loud, basically thinking, well, how the hell does Bill Guerin think he's going to get a second-round pick for a guy that's going to become a free agent August 15th? Like, Arizona, why would you give up a second if you could just sign Jack McBain on August 15th? And yet, what does that do? He has a player that will not sign with the Wild, and he trades him for that second-round pick. And here's another one where it's everybody in the league knows that he's got to trade the player. The player is going to determine if he's going to sign with that team long term, and yet he still winds up getting the two pieces that he wants. And you know, it, look, it's it's another bold move from Bill Guerin. Um, you know, he now sends him to a Western Conference team for the next seven years, a team that is going to a player that we both know is going to have an axe to grind with this team. That's just the way Kevin Fiala is wired. Um, and he puts him in, but he still he has no there's like no fear in Bill Guerin's. Uh, you know, decision-making to put him in that Western Conference team. And it's because he likes Brock Faber a lot and his staff like Brock Brock Faber a lot. I mean, he has watched this kid play a lot. He did a lot of due diligence with uh, people besides Bob Motzko, but Bob Motzko as well. I talked to him this afternoon. And look, we both watched the University of Minnesota a lot. This is a world-class skater, a great defender, a shutdown-type defender. Um, and we'll see now the one area where Bob Motzko thinks that he'll be able to grow his game that he really hasn't done is offensively. And we'll see if he's able to do that. Anthony. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's, it just, I think I love Billy's answer to it was that, look, if you eliminate the teams in the Western conference, you cut your trade partners in half. And I don't think he cared who the trade partner was. He was more interested in the return and this was the return he wanted. And now maybe he can say that maybe if it's Colorado or <laughs> St. Louis or something, he might feel a little differently. Somebody that not only is in the Western conference, but stands directly in your path through the regular season and the playoffs where a team in the Pacific, I mean, the reality is, yes, you see him three times a year, but you'd have to have a lot of things break right before you banged into them in the playoffs in all likelihood. And I just think you, you get the best deal you can. You go out and you get the package that you like the most and don't worry about the the what's happening for the other team. You got to worry about your own team. And, you know, so, yeah, let's talk about Brock Faber in general. I mean, I've seen him play quite a bit at the University of Minnesota. I know you have, too. I love his skating ability. I love his first pass ability, even though his offensive numbers aren't huge and they weren't they weren't huge at the University of Minnesota. They were pretty good in the World Juniors the first year he played there. I think he had five assists in six or seven games. Yep. And, and five assists, seven of the, games. He was one of the top defensemen on that U.S. team that had a really good defensive core. In fact, I believe that year they had three 
Minnesota Gopher defensemen that were all a part of their blue line core. But I, I think he's, he's that first pass ability doesn't necessarily always lead to points, but it sure makes life easy on you getting out of your own zone. But the other thing I think that favor brings that it'll be hard to, it's hard to know exactly how it'll translate into the pro game, but he's got an edge to his game that he's not, he is a smooth skater, but I saw a couple people, you know, make comparisons to say, could he be like Brodeen? Well, nobody skates like Brodeen. So that's unfair. He does skate really well. But he might have just a little more edge to his game than a guy yeah. like Brodeen does. Well, to quote Bob Matsko today, he's tougher than snot. So <laughs> my editors well, like yeah, it so much they put it in the headline. Yeah, yeah, that would that would support it. And and look, I mean, look, they, they, that's something I think the Wild need. Um, you know, especially for an undersized blue line, uh, they need more competitiveness back there, and and he'll eventually bring that. The other thing here, this is going to be his last year, obviously, at the University of Minnesota, I would assume. And, uh, you know, just listen to Bill Guerin today. I, well, I, while we both know it's not Bill Guerin's style to throw, especially a defenseman, right into the NHL, I didn't get the impression that Bill Guerin thinks that this kid is going to be long for, um, you know, the minor leagues. So I think that he's somebody that we're going to see in the next couple of years in a Minnesota uniform. Um, I'm going to be really excited I, to see the World Juniors this year, by the way, Anthony. I mean, how about this? The Wild are going to have five defensemen between Team Canada and the Team United States this year with Parrott, uh, Jack Parrott and uh, and Brock Faber on the United States and Ryan O'Rourke, Damon Hunt, and Carson Lambos on Canada. And then obviously they have Jesper Wallstaff playing for Team Sweden. So next month, World G- or excuse me, uh, August, uh, I'm thinking it's already July, uh, August 9th, the tournament begins, the rescheduled tournament. It's going to be fun to see all these guys play. Yeah, absolutely. And Faber was a part of this. Yeah, we talked about this, I think, I know we did during the hockey season that the LA Kings were the team that it was crazy how many guys they had in that tournament. I think they had nine one year and eight the next or 10 and nine yep. the last two years. And now Minnesota is because they've built this prospect pool the way they have. And I know that, you know, you mentioned it earlier and I heard you ask Billy today about were you, did you ever consider looking at forwards or centermen and, you know, we've seen it, we've experienced it, we've lived it, that just when you think you have enough defensemen in the fold, you need more. And I think he just looked at it and said, this is the best player that fits for the talent pool and the type of player that we're looking for. And we'll worry about adding a forward later and they might and, be, maybe they do that through the draft. Yeah. I, I think just adding another defenseman to this and, and now we'll get a chance to see five of them in that tournament. That's exciting. And, and uh, you know, to your point there, the Wild uh, pick four times in the top 56. There's going to be ample opportunity for Judd Brackett, who I'm talking to tomorrow on my other podcast, and he's also doing a Zoom with the local beat writers. Um, we, you know, he, he, there's going to be ample opportunity for him to go out and try to get some upper echelon forwards in this upcoming draft. Um, but the other thing is, like, look, you know, we, Brodine signed long-term. Spurgeon signed long-term. The future, who knows, is what's going to happen with Dumba. But the Wild right now have seven prospects on the blue line. Ryan O'Rourke, Damon Hunt, uh, Carson Lambos, Jack Peart, Simon Johansson, uh, Brock Faber, and um, I'm missing one obvious. Oh, Kalen Addison. They can't all play for the Minnesota Wild. They, I mean, it's just absolutely impossible. So, I mean, the other thing here is that when this cap hell ends, I think the goal from Bill Guerin's point of view is to build up as much currency as he can from a prospect pool standpoint that he can use one of those upper echelon defensemen and maybe use it as currency to go out and get a forward. So there's going to be ample opportunity for that as well. Um, so uh, let's, you know, just, let's talk brief. I, I agree with you on that. Let's, I, I want to get your thoughts on what the wild have lost in this in yes. Kevin Fiala, because yep. I think it's, to replace a guy that scored 33 goals and 85 points is next to impossible. And perhaps it's Marco Rossi that at least fills that role in the top six next year and and other guys get moved around a little bit. Marco Rossi is not going to score 33 goals and 85 points next season. I, I just There's just no way. And so maybe it's a combination of some other guys. But I really wonder – and. I love Kevin Fiala as a player. I thought he produced these big numbers in spite of the fact that he wasn't playing with necessarily the the most elite offensively gifted players on his line until Matt Boldy arrived. I felt like he 
he may have, and I know he felt that he may have absorbed more blame than some of the other guys at different times during the year. But I don't know if, if let's just say that you didn't have the cap restrictions of the buyouts and you're just looking at the player himself and nearly 8 million bucks a year for the next seven years. I'm not positive yet that you can win with Kevin Fiala taking up that much of your cap space. And I'm certainly not positive that you can win if Kevin Fiala is your best player. I thought he thrived in a secondary scoring role. And, but let's just say that you had, you, you didn't have the, the 12 million in dead cap and you had a, a normal amount of cap money. Would you pay $8 million per year for Kevin Fiala? I would not. I mean, I, I've, I think I've been consistent with that, that I just don't think that he is somebody that you can win with long-term if he is the guy that wants to be paid like a star. And he has made it amply, I mean, abundantly clear that he's wanted to be paid like a star for uh, some time now. And, um, you know, I just watched a team with a winger that is paid like a star in Tampa Bay. And when he is not good, Nikita Kucherov, it becomes a big time issue there. And I think that Kevin is somebody and everything that you said is true, by the way. I mean, he, he did get the short shrift with it in terms of wingers. He did get treated extremely differently from coach Dean Evison. And there is no doubt that those two needed a divorce and wanted a divorce from each other. Um, and I think that it's just come to the point now where just when, when they started talking eight, nine million, even just in the previous summers, I think that Bill Guerin recognized right away that this was somebody that they were going to have to move on from. And what the Parisian suitor buyout did is at least bought them one year of Kevin Fiala. And Kevin should be extremely thankful for that because I don't think if they traded him last summer that he would have gotten this type of long-term contract on an immediate extension. There's just no way that he would have been paid by $8 million. Right. No, by, I, yeah. no doubt. No doubt about that. And so now I think you look and, and look, the guy had a great year, and he's an electric player. He's a potential game-changing forward as a scorer. But I I just don't know. If if your second-best scorer is making $8 million bucks a year, there just aren't very many teams out there that have that kind of – that build their teams that way. And Minnesota's clearly not that. They've yeah. chosen to spend Especially more from, of that money on yeah. blue liners and, and depth-type players – and build their team more that way. And, and especially so we'll from a wing standpoint. I mean, you know, if you, if it's a center, that's one thing. Um, but, you know, to have two wingers making 9 and $8 million, it just usually doesn't work uh, in most situations. So, um, you know, pretty, uh, you know, um, <laughs> it's going to be interesting this next week because, you know, suddenly it's like, you know, all week I'm thinking, well, I got to pay attention to the Kevin Fiala stuff. And now obviously uh, that is uh, very different. Um uh, by the way, I, I didn't mention our next live show is July 11th, July 11th at Elsie's in downtown Minneapolis, actually in the northeast side of the river. Uh, great parking lot, great place to uh, have a podcast, great place to eat and have drinks. So join Anthony and myself there. That'll be right after I get back from the NHL draft. So there'll be plenty of talk about it, talk to talk about it. It's two days before free agency as well. I also want to tell you about Aquarius and Connecticut Water Treatments. Connecticut Water Treatments are designed to tackle the toughest well water out there, and Minnesota can have some pretty nasty well water. Eliminate orange rust staining, get rid of any white scale buildup, any bad odor or smell from your water, and get that great tasting drinking water right from your sink. You will see, feel, and taste the difference that the non-electric Connecticut water treatment and drinking water system can make in your home or your cabin. My friends over at Aquarius Home Services, Connecticut, offer a free water analysis. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended. That's why I recommend them every week on this show. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. And don't forget to mention, Russo sent you. And here's a word from Royal Credit Union, less fee, more free. Take the checking account challenge from Royal Credit Union. Compare your checking account to Royal and see why it makes sense to switch. Royal's checking accounts have no hidden fees and lots of free features that make it easy to stay on top of your money. You can deposit checks with Royal's mobile app, receive real-time notifications when transactions happen, and even freeze your debit card in seconds. See what other features you're missing out on and make the switch to a Royal checking account at rcu.org slash royalchallenge, insured by NCUA. Anthony, tell us about Kowalski's. Well, Kowalski's has added a new line of steaks that's outstanding. Uh, prime New York strip steaks, sirloins, boneless ribeyes that are all 40-day aged and prime. It's the beef that's that aged 
undergoes a, a transformation because it is held at a specific temperature, and that really allows the flavor and tenderness to maximize. I've tried a couple of these. We had a we had a Denver or a Kansas City strip the other night, and I've tried their ribeyes. They are phenomenal. They're right up there with the Akaushis that I love so much. So give these a shot at Kowalski's. They're the 40-day age prime steaks. They are terrific. You won't be disappointed. Anytime that you're going to have a great meal, you got to start with the best ingredients. So we're back here on Worst Seats in the House. Mike Caruso and Anthony LaPanta. I'm coming to you from my home. Anthony's coming to you from Valley Sports North. July 11th, uh, join Anthony, myself, and producer Brandon Morton over at Elsie's in Northeast Minneapolis. Uh, anything more to get to uh, from the trade? Let's talk actually about the lineup, uh, Anthony, next year. So right now, let's just assume that nothing else is done to this roster in the next time that all these no more trades are happening, that this is the team. Um, I would assume that they come back uh, and start next season with the Hartman, Kaprizov, and um, and Zuccarello line. I would assume the grief line stays intact. Do you assume that if Marco Rossi comes ready to vie for a roster spot out of camp, that he will be next to Matt Boldy and maybe Freddie Goudreau uh, come day one of training camp? Definitely assume that he would be next to Boldy. And Goudreau, I think, really depends on what else happens with the roster. Mm-hmm. And it's still, I Goudreau's such a solid player and might be a good guy to put on a line with his responsibility with two really young players like Boldy and Rossi. And I think what we'll see next year is more, we might see a little bit more maneuvering and movement within the lines over the course of the season than we saw last. But I do think that's probably where you start is maybe with Rossi, Boldy, and Gaudreau. The only other possibility would be a guy like a Tyson Jost or something on that line where Gaudreau becomes more of a fourth line penalty killer, that type of player. But I, the way Dean Evison respects his game, I just don't see how he doesn't at least start with him providing some stability, some responsibility to align with a couple of young scoring stars like Rossi and Moldy. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, that, that's what, like, it makes sense because they have seemingly, I don't want to say promise, but they've alluded to the fact that they feel like Tyson Joes can bite off more ice time and responsibility in a, in a more of a scoring role. But when you look at the lineup, there's no real opportunity unless Rossi doesn't make the team or unless Goudreau's on the fourth line. And I just have a hard time believing that Dean Evison is just going to be comfortable with not playing, um, you know, Freddie Goudreau more minutes than a fourth liner. Don't you agree? Yeah, but there are ways to get the fourth liner more minutes too, where it, maybe it's maybe it's defensive zone faceoffs when the Rossi Boldy line is up, and instead of playing Jost, you throw Goudreau out there, you use him on the penalty kill. There are, there are ways to get the minutes up. In fact, we saw him do a little bit of that with Jost last year to say, let's give him a few more minutes, a few more shifts, even though he's a fourth-line guy. But I, I just think the way – and Gaudreau earned this. He proved that he could be a, a very solid part of that second line for Minnesota all last year. Maybe not flashy, but just a, a, he brought some stability to that line, to say the least. And – then when playing with Fiala and Boldy, he showed that he has a little more offensive skill than just your basic, hey, he's there to be responsible guy. I think he showed a little more than that. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, the, the one thing that, that gained a lot of um, reaction from the fans, and then I, I want to talk to you about the Stanley Cup final before we go into the final segment and talk Twitter questions, um, is, you know, Bill Guerin's you know, sort of repeating something that has been his mantra on a lot of these calls is that one, he doesn't try to win a trade. He tries to make a fair deal, but two, that he doesn't like, you know, for lack of, uh, I'm trying to th- do this without making Brandon beep out my entire, uh, uh, line of thinking here. Uh, let's just say <laughs> he doesn't like people around. that come and kick the tires. Yeah. Like he, he doesn't like, like, yeah, just like make your best offer and let's get going. He doesn't want to waste time. And I think that, you know, any look, he could have been just saying this to also protect the fact that maybe Fiala didn't want to go to certain places, protect the other teams that were potentially involved. Um, but, you know, the one thing that when he says that, that he, you know, he used the term, he didn't want to leverage team, go, you know, teams after team at the draft. 
I think that what that does is it says to Wild fans, well, wait a minute, maybe you should have been a little more patient for a week because as we all know, when it comes to draft time, usually teams don't put their best cards on the table until the pressure point, which is pretty much the night before the draft or the day of the draft. So could he have gotten conceivably more if he had waited? Could he have gotten into the top 10? Now, I mean, look, you know, I have it hard hard to believe that if Bill Guerin was able to pull, was willing to pull this deal off, that he didn't know 100% that, look, the Devils weren't giving up the number two, that Ottawa wasn't giving up the number seven, or maybe just Fiala wasn't willing to go to Ottawa. I mean, look, L, you know, a seven-year deal at $8 million in L.A. is pretty appetizing uh, when you're Kevin Fiala. So, um, but if, you know, are you a little surprised that maybe Bill did, what, didn't show a little more patience? Or do you think that he's just saying this also because he knows that, look, this was probably going to be the best deal that he could get with a team that, was, that Kevin was willing to sign long-term with? Yeah, I think you're talking about a guy who probably had had enough conversations to have an idea of what was going to be out there. Mm-hmm. And when you look at some of the other deals he's made that have happened fast, like the we were talking about Tyson Jost earlier, that deal with Nico Sturm, yep. when somebody calls him, he does seem to just appreciate the no BS approach that, yep. hey, look, I'm looking at this guy. I got this guy who I think is in the ballpark. What do you think? Let's go. And rather than the guy who comes and tries to lowball you. And I, I can relate to that if it were – like, look, I mean, don't come and ask me for something you know that there's no way I'm going to give you. And these conversations, I'm certain, have been going on since the middle of the season yes. where when you're in an arena, you just, yeah, we're pro- we probably are going to have to move him. I don't get the sense that Billy is a BS guy going the other way either, where he's probably not telling any of these guys that, well, we might be able to keep him. I mean, I'm sure he was just saying, look, the numbers tell me that I'm probably going to have to make the deal and we'd love to keep him, but I can't. And so I think it's a two-way street where you probably end up with both sides of the negotiation are that way. And, you know, you have to understand how to deal with these guys. And not every GM handles it that way, but I don't think it'll be a surprise if over the years you see Billy deal with the same type of teams more frequently just because of the way that they both might approach things and look at things. Uh, some other tidbits, if uh, if you hadn't had a chance to read my article in The Athletic uh, that we got from Bill Guerin today when we were on the Zoom, is uh, so absent of any trades, uh, any further trades this week, you know, whether they free up any more space, the Wild have $7.383 million worth of cap space heading into uh, free agency. With that $7.383 million, they've got to sign two forwards. Now, one could be Marco Rossi, the other could be a Nick Delorier or a free agent, something like that, maybe an internal upgrade from, from Iowa. But that's they are short two forwards on their roster now that Kevin Fiala is traded. Uh, a new contract for Jake Middleton, which I think will be in about the $2 million range. And then a second goalie, whether that's Marc-Andre Fleury or another with that limited cap room. So uh, we'll see if any uh, new, any more moves happen this week. Bill Guerin didn't sound like he was expecting anything or that anything was on the on the back burner. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with Marc-Andre Fleury here. Free agency is July 13th, so we're two weeks away from that, Anthony. Um, now... Uh, right now, Mark Andre Fleury is on vacation. Uh, he lives 70 miles from Montreal, so conceivably, uh, Bill Guerin and Mark Andre Fleury could meet while we're at the draft next week in Montreal. Um, but if Mark Andre Fleury is not coming back here, the Wild are going to need either a really good number two or a one B because Cam Talbot turns 35 next week. So um, to expect Cam Talbot to play 60, 65 games next year is probably um, unreasonable. So uh, you know, in terms of goaltending, uh, first of all, I mean, do you? At this point, do you think Flurry comes back? I don't, but that, yeah, that's one hundred percent a guess. I yeah, just get the I, feeling I just get like, that in, yeah, if he I'm was going you. to sign here, it might have happened fast. It might have happened already. I mean, not that you could, but you, we'd be starting to hear those those thoughts. That look, he sounds like he he's he's everything he's said makes it sound like he wants to go out and see what else is out there, and I just get the feeling like. I get the feeling like he's not coming back, but yeah, I mean, like, look, like, just like, look at this real quick. If you're, you know, there's lots of talk out there that Pittsburgh might want him back. I mean, obviously, they would have to make some room for that to happen. Right now, Toronto doesn't have a goalie. It's not guaranteed that Jack Campbell is going to come back. Um, you know, everything I heard that it was between Minnesota and Toronto at the trade deadline, and then the other one is Colorado. Like, I mean, you know, Darcy Kemper just won a cup, but it's no guarantee that he's going back there. I think now it's probably more likely that he's going back because you know, even though he's the has the fourth lowest save percentage in the last 50 years for a cup-winning goalie. 
Um, the reality is, is that when they needed him to be good in game four and game six, he was great. So, um, you know, but look, there, there might be some other opportunities for Marc-Andre out there. But the question is, if Marc-Andre doesn't come back, who, who did the Wild go out and get uh, at their limited cap space that at a max, I would say you could spend three, three and a half million on a goalie. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, probably. And I haven't really looked at who else might be out there. And a lot of the guys that you just mentioned. Here, I have a list of the free. So this is well, not right, but I mean, like, but let's yeah, just is, say, let's say Kemper resigns in Colorado. Well, that not only takes away an option for the wild, it also takes away a job for flurry. So right. I think there's a few that are like that, that we just don't know yet what will happen there. But I get the feeling like there might be some shuffling in the goaltending world around the NHL this yeah. year. Um, in terms of uh, like true backups that are out there, uh, you know, obviously Billy Huso is somebody that the Blues haven't re-signed yet, so he could be a free agent. But again, I got to think that he's going to be somebody that a team would look at as maybe a number one. Campbell, obviously, uh, somebody that teams like number one. But in terms of depth, uh, Casey DeSmith, Braden Holpe, who's just been really bad lately, um, Eric Comrie, uh, Scott Wedgwood, uh, Thomas Grice, uh, Martin Jones, who we know is not very good. Um, so not a lot of great options, you know, maybe there's a trade option as well, but those would be some, uh, some potential options if Mark Andre Fleury says no, but I think they got to get somebody good because again, Cam Talbot, 35 years old, and he's had that propensity the last couple of years to have some injuries follow him as well, as well. So, uh, we'll you know, see what happens. Some of those guys there. you mentioned would be fine if you're looking for a guy to play 28 games. Yeah. I don't think any of them are the guys that you would just go like you did with Talbot and Fleury late where you were essentially playing them every other night, maybe two here and there, but where you'd be looking at maybe a 45-35 kind of split for a season or even maybe even more evenly split than that, where I think some of those guys you mentioned, if if they're the options, it's got to be a Talbot 55 and the backup 25 type split. No doubt. Um, let's talk Stanley Cup final, and then we'll talk. Uh, we'll take some Twitter questions and wrap up the show, Anthony. Um First of all, I, I got to tell you, uh, really, uh, I don't know if you know him, but I had a thrill the other day. I was flying from, I was connecting from Tampa uh, in Minneapolis, and I connected on my way to Denver, and sitting next to me on the plane was Mike Tirico. And have you ever met him? No. Uh, I'm telling you, like, everything you'd think of him on the air is who he is when you meet him in person. Is that right? It was, it, I love him a, on the air. I love him what a, I mean, what a great guy. Like I, I just had a blast talking to him. Like, I mean, as personal as could be hockey fanatic, um, you know, like all we were talking so much about game four because it was between games four and five. Um, it was, I just had a blast, but what a, what a, what a great guy. And he was actually not even going out there for the Stanley cup final. He was going out there, uh, I think for, for uh us Olympic meetings or something, but, uh, you know, just, I don't know. It was, it was just a really, really cool thing. I had a blast covering the Stanley cup final, Anthony. Um, First of all, Denver and Tampa, the two downtowns, the booming, the boom that is going on in both these downtowns of just restaurants popping up, condos. Like Denver is just such a different city than when I was there, you know, covering the Avalanche when I covered Florida and was at McNichols Arena and it was just, you know, like nothing downtown. Uh, it's just an awesome place and uh, just had a, it was just a, a fun, fun experience covering the uh, both the Eastern Conference Finals and the Stanley Cup Finals. I will say a, a month away. Not good for my weight. Uh, not good at all. <laughs> well, I'm like, just, just glad imagine, I can't be the guy that's blamed for that. I mean, I, I, it usually is that I'm the bad influence, I know. so I, I I'm know. glad it wasn't me. Yeah, but I mean, just imagine eating out three meals a day oh, I know. for an entire – I mean, basically five weeks. I was gone from May 27th until the other day, so – uh, you got to work it, hard in those sets, yeah. in those settings to eat right. You really do. And it's, I'm not like it, there are times where we'll be on the road, even for a, anything longer than really three or four. Like if it's a, if it's anything longer than a three city trip, it's and even like gone four days to go to two cities. I feel like I can't get home fast enough to have a home cooked meal. And yeah. you just crave the little things like, having fruit available for a snack or things like that. So it, you do, there are some cities where grocery stores are an option and you can help yourself out a little with that. But I agree. It is not easy. And, and it's just so tempting that, you know, when, for me anyway, it's tempting where you, all right, well, the game's over. I'm not going anywhere. Why wouldn't I stop someplace and have a glass of wine instead yep. of, I don't have, my family's not with me. I don't have a, a place to go home and, 
to see people or whatever. So yeah, you stop, hey, I'll stop, grab a glass of wine. Well, that all adds up and catches up with you. So I, it's not a, you're not the first guy that is probably having that battle. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so what do you think of the Stanley Cup final? I mean, uh, it, it just felt to me that Tampa ran completely out of gas. They, you know, obviously the avalanche ran through the playoffs um, and, and saved themselves a lot of wear and tear on their bodies uh, where Tampa Bay had some long series other than sweep against Florida. They had an amazing amount of injuries that were announced out uh, after the season. What some of these guys were playing through was pretty astronomical. And they just, you know, you saw it in overtime in game four and really throughout the third period in game six that the Lightning just did not have that extra gear that they've showed in the last two playoffs. Yeah, I think that's right. I did think that Tampa actually showed me something, though. I I thought when the way that they responded, first of all, in game one, when Colorado was basically running them over early and it looked like exactly what you're describing. And then they, Andre Vasilevsky kept him in it, got the game into OT and at least gave him a chance. When they got blown out in game two, it looked like this might be a short series. And the way they responded in games three and four in Tampa was, that was what championship teams do. And they, they found a way. And I remember sitting there thinking that, okay, now it's, it's going back to Denver for game five and everybody just assumes that this is going to be, it's going to be over. And Vinny and I were talking in the living room and I said, but what you have to, it's three games to one with two overtime wins for Colorado at this point. I mean, it, it could very easily be two, two or even three, one the other way. And when Tampa found a way to win game five, I, I still, I Colorado was the better team. They were the better team all season. They were the better team in the first three rounds of the playoffs too. They deserved to win. But I think we saw a lot of why Tampa was a two-time champion. And we talked on, I think it was maybe our last in-person show about how much respect I have and maybe gained even more during this playoff run from John Cooper to, to watch the way he ran his team, to listen to the things he said about his team, to listen to his post-game interview after the series was over. I, just, I mean, what a what an unbelievable guy, an unbelievable leader for that team, and a huge reason why they've been in the finals three years in a row. Yeah, I was impressed with both coaches. Uh, you know, it's really the most that, you know, usually when you're covering a wild Colorado series, you know, a lot of times you miss the post-game of the other coach because your coach is – talking at the same exact time. So I really didn't have a lot of, you know, experience dealing with Jared Bednor. Um, Really insightful, his quotes, uh, his belief in his team, his belief in his players, and I thought he coached a masterful series. I thought the one misstep probably from, in my opinion, from uh, John Cooper was after game four with the whole too many men thing. I thought he overblew that and it became, uh, you know, a big talking point. Uh, But hey, then his team goes into game five and wins that game. So pretty Pretty impressive. So Eric Johnson, a a Stanley Cup champion, very, very happy for him. Um, uh, You know, I, I, you know, got to run into him actually between games five and six with him leaving the Pepsi Center, uh, going out to his car. And we had a nice little conversation that day before he won the cup and uh, really happy for him. Nico Sturm as well. Uh, Man, did uh, (laughs) if you're going to turn down a five year, two and a half million dollar deal with the Minnesota Wild, that's pretty nice of Bill Guerin to send him (laughs) to the Colorado Avalanche. And he goes (laughs) and wins the cup as well. Yeah, good for Nico. And Good to see Darcy Kemper win. I mean, just a, a tremendous young man, and good to see him. I interesting you bring up the John Cooper thing because that was one of the things that I thought Jared Bednar handled really well early yeah. in the playoffs in the St. Louis series. I don't know if you remember the the exchange where there were a couple hits, one of which led to Braden Shen yep. losing his mind and going after. I don't remember who it was for Colorado, but. Cadre in front of the Colorado bench. But after that game, Craig Berube came out and was spent the first couple minutes of his post-game press conference talking about how the it was flagrant, it was a terrible play, it wasn't even a penalty on the play, if I remember right. And and Bednar came out and talked about the hit that ended the playoffs for Gerard. Samuel Gerard. Samuel yeah. Gerard, right? And he just said, Boy, when I saw it live. I didn't like it when I went back and watched it. I think it was a clean hit and unfortunate and unfortunate there's an injury, but I thought it was a clean hit. And I just thought, wow, what a difference in the way these two guys handled hits in that same game. 
And I just think that Bednar's approach was, and maybe it's easy to approach things that way when you're holding all the cards. You're sitting at the table and you've got ace through eight of Trump and you just are, yeah, it's all right. It's, that's okay. Cause I know I've got more bullets in the gun than you do, so to speak. I I don't know, maybe, but I was impressed with how he, how even keel he was throughout the playoffs. Well, I always, I'm always like, I remember Mike Yo after game six in Colorado in 2014, you were, you were the play-by-play by the, again. Yeah. So you might remember this. Paul Stasny goes off sides. The Wild lose that game. They now have to go was, home for game, game five. Yeah, so game they, five have to, in Denver. they have to now go home and win game six to force a game seven that they're going to have to win. And they just got screwed in game five. And the media were ready to just like, you know, go out on with stakes against the officials and the linesmen and for screwing that up. And he's just like, whatever it was offsides. We got to move on. Like he was so like non, like he didn't blame anybody. He didn't make a distraction for his yep. team to think he, they got screwed. And I, I still think that's one big reason why the wild were able to have quick memories, go win game six. And then obviously, as we know, have the huge game seven win in 2014. Yep. I, um, I couldn't agree more, and they played so well in Game Six. And I remember talking about that during, during the broadcast that we really felt like the stage was set for Game Six in the way he handled the Game Five loss. And it was over. There was a non-story because of it, and I think it was in the back of all the players' minds too. And and then he, I think it even carries over into Game Seven of that series, where four times they're down by a goal, and it was like, yeah, all right, well, we're down a goal. Our goalie is out. And well, what are you going to do? Just we got to we got to win the next shift. We got to score the next goal. And I remember talking to him on the plane after they won that series, and we're heading to Chicago. And and I just kind of kiddingly had said to him, "Never a doubt." And he looked at me and he said, "You know what?" He said, "I never had a doubt." He said, "I just figured we were playing so well that eventually we were going to figure it out, find a way." And I think the team fed off that. Was it that series or a different one of the Chicago series where you called Joe's in Chicago and told him, hey, I'm Anthony LaPanta with the uh, Minnesota Wild. I want to see if I can get a private room. And they thought the entire team was coming. And instead it was like eight schlub, like media people. Yeah, it was that (laughs) series. And it was, and I didn't really promise him it was the Wild. I just said, hey, we're in town with the Wild. And all I asked him, what I asked him for was just a table for eight. And the guy called me back a couple minutes later and said, well, we have a private room. Will that work? It's like, well, absolutely that'll work because we want to watch hockey games. And, <laughs> and it, boy, I tell you, it was a great setup, though, wasn't it? It was. But they, I think they were a little disappointed when they realized they were about to get like a $2,000 tip. Uh, so it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty Yeah, fun. I think we might have, uh, we might have had a tab that was big enough for them. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty big because Chad Graff, yep. if you remember, actually tweeted it out. Right. Um, before I have one more thing on the Stanley Cup final before we take Twitter questions, but I did want to tell everybody about Bosch Law Firm. Hey, hockey fans, Jerry Bosch here again from Bosch Law Firm and WorkCompExperts.com. If you're injured at work, it's never too soon to contact the lawyers and awesome staff at Bosch Law Firm. We'll answer all your questions, help you set up your work comp claim, and help you select professionals who will be there to help you, not the insurance company. And with almost 30 years of litigation experience, if your benefits are denied, we'll fight to get you paid. Bosch Law Firm. The call's always free and there's never a fee unless we obtain benefits on your behalf. Call or text us at 651-333-8300 or visit us at workcompexperts.com. If you're thinking about selling your home, now is the time. Now you can get a strong cash offer, sell your home stress-free with a guaranteed offer with Chris and Dahl Real Estate. Don't worry about the hassle of a constant cleaning and home maintenance. Sell your home with Chris Lindahl today. Go to chrislindahl.com, fill out a quick form, receive an all-cash offer on your home today. No obligation, and the guaranteed offer allows you to bypass the market and sell your home hassle-free. That means no showings, no open house, no stress. Just choose when you want to move, and you will close with confidence. The Wall Street Journal named Chris Lindahl Real Estate the number one real estate team in Minnesota and Wisconsin for closed transactions. The Chris Lindell Real Estate Guaranteed Offer keeps you in control. It's that simple. Go to chrislindell.com to get a guaranteed offer in your home today so you can start packing. Certain restrictions apply, and disclaimer has to be included, Brandon. And by the way, if you want to uh, sub- subscribe, not subscribe, if you want to advertise on, I'll do that again, Brandon, so you don't have to edit it. And by the way, if you want to advertise on Work Seats in the House, email Karen Cleary at kcleary, C L E R Y at talknorth.com. Again, K 
C-L-E-A-R-Y at talknorth.com. We have uh, some open spots if you want to advertise. Anthony, one last topic on the Stanley Cup final, and it's one of my favorite subjects talking with you before we get to Twitter questions, and that is the uh, bottoming out. You know, I mean, like the one thing I've seen from Wild fans the last little while about the Colorado Avalanche winning the Stanley Cup final is just frustration. Uh, You know, that their rival looks not only to have won their first cup, but could be in in a position where, you know, they, they could win multiple cups because they look so dominant. They have such a young core and things like that. But the, what I think a lot of people forget is that while Joe Sackick made a lot of great moves at the trade deadline and last year adding Devon Taves and adding Nazem Kadri, the reality is the core of this team are because they were god-awful for three years, right? They, they were terrible. They get, they get Landis Gog. They were terrible. They get Nathan McKinnon. They were terrible. Lose the lottery and get Kale McCarr. Um, you know, that stuff is, is things that the wild have never had the ability to do because they're always so competitive. Um, does it make you lose hope that the wild could ever catch up to be in a spot where they can overtake a team like Colorado when they're constantly sort of in this win now mode and sort of like, you know, walking on that sort of like fine line? No, and it doesn't. And we've had this conversation a million times. You talk about the abs, they they actually bottomed out twice because Three the first times, time really. they bottomed out. Yeah. yeah the, the first time was when they ended up with McKinnon, Rantanen, and Landeskog. Right. Then they had the year that they won the division when Minnesota beat them in the first round. And I know I've kidded with you about this a number of times where, you know, that was you saying to me that, hey, the, the Wilder, they're going to be looking up at the Avs for a decade with this team. And three years later, the Avs have the worst team in. 48 points. Who knows how? Yeah, 48 points. I mean, they were terrible. So they bottom out again, and you wind up with the next wave of players. And uh, there was a great picture I saw somewhere posted on social media of the guys that were left from that 48-point team. And those are pretty good, pretty damn good hockey players. But so they bottomed out twice. Here's why I'm not worried about it from a wild perspective, because – what you have to be able to get with one of those top end picks, like and we're talking about a bottom out type pick, like a top three or four selection in the draft, is a Kirill Kaprizov. And the Wild have that guy. So they essentially have the guy you'd hope to get if you bottomed out that they just picked up in the fifth round. So the rest of the team can be built around him. And I think the, the supporting cast that Billy Garen has put together, the depth he's started to build is good enough where you will be able to contend because the missing piece for bottoming out is the, the teams that have bottomed out where they've been able to get a, a McDavid or a Dreisaitl or a Landeskog, a McKinnon or a Rantanen, or you name the team that's been up there and been a, a cup winner and a contender. They've all had that pick in the top five. And Kirill Kaprizov is essentially that guy, even though he wasn't picked in the top five. Yeah, no doubt. Sorry, I'm uh, believe it or not, I'm just texting back Brock Faber. He just texted me uh, for an interview. So um, I'll do that right when I get off with you, Anthony. So we'll have another cool Perfect. story in the Athletic tomorrow. Um, let's go to Twitter questions. Uh, Brett Marshall, who, if you're listening to this, knows that you were on my list a bit today um, for kind of a funny reason. He got me involved. I was on just, your list. No, no, no. Brett, Brett Marshall. Oh, he was, was on your list. Yeah, yeah. Good. I was going to say, favorite, yeah, he was one of my favorite. I don't really think Twitter. I did anything to get yeah, on no, your no, list today. No, no, but I'm sure it wouldn't. I'm sure it would have happened if we had talked more. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, Brett, Brett sent me a screen capture of something in this, this just, just loser Ottawa Senators guy just created a whole world of distractions for me today when I knew what was going on with the LA Kings at the time. But anyway, um, so Brett Marshall uh, asks, is there a world, this is an interesting question, where the Wild move on from both their current goaltenders and look at a trade with the Ducks for John Gibson, uh, his contract plus a cheap backup, uh, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I just think that would be hard to figure out a way to do. I mean, first of all, Gibson hasn't been good the last year or so. Now that could be just because he's tired of playing for that team, right? Um, but, um, you know, he's got 6.4 million bucks for the next, what, five years after this. Like, I just don't see how you make it work. Um, you'd have to give up, you know, you'd have to make more trades to make that affordable to, and then go out and get another backup, right? So that just seems sort of impossible. 
Yeah, I don't think so. I To me, I think you're looking at one year with Cam Talbot left in your goaltender plans, and I really think that depends on who the other guy becomes. If it's a, a guy that's your number two this year, then next year you maybe are looking for another type guy like that, a bridge-type guy in hopes that Wallstead's ready. And if it's a 1B guy this year, maybe it gives Wallstead one year to be your backup and mm-hmm. before you move that direction. I, I just I don't see how th- they've got enough other things happening with this roster. Adding a turnover in the in both goaltender spots doesn't seem likely. Yeah, if you're going to spend 6.4, I think they should invest in other areas. Um, Wild Boys 59 asks, uh, what do you think Middleton's deal will look like? Um, Jeremy Lousen uh, uh, with Nashville just signed a two a four-year deal worth $8 million, $2 million a year. I think that's a really good comparable. Uh, you know, Middleton's played 80 games. Uh, Jeremy played 142 uh, Middleton's 26, Jeremy's uh, 25. Middleton just became a first-year regular NHLer. Jeremy's only uh, two years in. I think that probably would be the n- the number that the Wild would at least look at in terms of a comparable. Who knows from Middleton's uh, camp? The fact that it's not done yet, it might mean that Middleton's camp is thinking uh, loftier there. Um, OC Wild Boys 59 also asks, uh, thoughts on Kulikov uh, being potentially traded, Anthony? Um I don't know. It's something I would definitely consider. Uh, the one thing, though, is we don't know Merrill's health situation after his shoulder surgery. But the other thing is, you know, Anthony, um, I don't know if you were on. You, you said you were on the Bill Guerin Zoom today? I was. Didn't I mean, the one thing that was interesting is when he said that he thinks Kalen Addison has a real good chance of making this roster this year. I was thinking, how? Because right now their top seven is intact, right? You have Middleton and Spurgeon. You have Dumba and Brodine. You have Kulikov and Merrill, and you have Goligoski. Um, you know, obviously, maybe he's thinking that Merrill's not going to be ready for the season, and that's how Addison can make the team. But I took it more like he's going to be on the team to play, and if that's the case, maybe he is looking to trade like a guy like Kulikov. It could be. I mean, I, the the only guys you could really realistically move out of that group would be Kulikov. I don't think a Dumba trade is even remotely possible at this point. Merrill's injured, so you can't really move him. I mean, so you've got that leaves you with Kulikov and Goligoski as potential trade guys, and I just don't see Goligoski being dealt. So, and he's got a Kulikov new move, might, right? But I mean, he'd have that's you'd have to have he'd have to have consent to a deal. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I I think the only way that Addison's got a legit shot is if Kulikov gets moved, and I think there'd be a market for him there. There are a lot of teams we saw late in the year, even really any time during the second half, where I remember looking and talking with, whether it be Karts or Wes, and saying, boy, how badly do you think those guys would kill to have Kulikov on their third set right now as we were watching teams running American Hockey League guys out there on the blue line. I think there are a lot of teams out there that would have some interest in Kulikov. Yeah. And, and look, I think we're all – no, we have, we're all remembering the end of the year, obviously the playoffs where he played two games and struggled in both. But, but you know, for the most part this year, he's a pretty good defenseman for the Wild. He had some 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 bad games, but uh, for the most part, pretty good. Jake Warren, uh, when will the 22-23 schedule be released? I believe that will come next week, uh, which means that a couple days before the preseason schedule will come out as well. Um, there's going to be, uh, I hear, a big surprise coming on that 22-23 uh, uh, regular season schedule as well in the first month of the season. Um, <laughs> Cameron Myers asks Anthony, what will you both do now that the Kevin Fiala watch has ended? What will, what will we talk about now on this uh, thing? Like, other than Dumba for the next year, I bet. I will look forward to a podcast where we don't have to speculate and answer the question that we don't know what's going to happen yet with Kevin Fiala. We don't know who he might be traded to. We don't know what the return might be. We don't know how they'll make the roster fit with or without him. Yep. That, that, that's exactly how I'm going to handle it. But I saw one other guy who had asked saying, like, had three questions. And one was, do you think the trade was a good trade? Are you excited about the fact that you don't have to answer the questions anymore, speculating about Fiala's future? And then the third question was something along the lines of, 
you know, what do you think the next, who do you think the next player is that will create this kind of angst for repeated questions over and over again? And I don't even want to, I don't even want to think about it. I don't even want to speculate as to who it'll be that will become that kind of lightning rod for questions. Yeah. Maybe Zuccarello in the next year or so, because that's when it's going to be an interesting topic, just with him getting older. Now that he his no move sort of dissipates and he's got a, a, a limited no trade, which means the Wild now have an ability to move him. Um, but then how that would affect Kirill Kaprizov, that, but this could be a topic coming up. And uh, we're already well, here. And, and I mean, Matt Dumba, Matt yeah. Dumba could be a topic too, just because he's such a he's an assistant captain. He's a, a player that's liked and respected inside the room. And the reality is, his contract's up. Yep, exactly. A couple more questions for you, Anthony. Um, Andrew asks uh, me any idea what a bridge ter- bridge deal for Matt Boldy would look like this summer. Uh, my gut says two or three years at three or three and a half million bucks. Um, KPC, how anything the Wild could learn from the final two teams, uh, other than having Kale McCarr and Nathan McKinnon, and I don't know what. What do you think they could learn from those two teams, Anthony? Well, I think there's there's just a difference with Tampa right now because of the confidence of having been there and done that. But you you really have to just go through it once before you earn that, and. Let's not forget, I mean, yes, they did win 11 series in a row, which was an amazing run, but it was 2019, they had the best record in the NHL, and they got swept in the first round. So this isn't like a, a team that hasn't experienced adversity either. I mean, they've, but they've bounced back well from it. On the Colorado side, I just think you've got some world-class players. Nathan McKinnon, as I've made the point over the year, that if I was starting a franchise, had to pick one forward, he might be the guy I select. And after watching these playoffs, Kale McCarr might not be far behind. Just yeah, because he might be first, actually. Yeah, it is. I like mean, you that, ask well, anybody in that Colorado locker room right now, you ask Nathan McKinnon, and he's not being humble. You ask Landis Gog. You ask the coach. The most important player on that team is Kale McCarr. And yeah, you know what's amazing and, about watching Kale McCarr is that he's five foot eleven. yet when you watch him on the ice, he looks much bigger. Like he is he an does. unbelievable player. He it's played awesome. bigger and more rigid in the playoffs too. I, I think he and over the course of the season, and maybe they were just trying to keep him healthy. And there were some times I watched him where I was like, "Wow, you know, he's a he's a really gifted offensive player. He's a really gifted skater. He's a, a one man breakout kind of guy." But there were a lot of games where, well, the game was on the line and he wasn't the guy they had out there for a defensive zone draw. And it just kind of made you wonder, like, is he sturdy enough? But, man, throughout these playoffs, that question was answered and almost like you feel like an idiot for asking it because he was so good and so deserving of the con Smythe. And I just think this is a guy, was it Landis Cogger McKinnon who when asked after the game said, what would you, what lesson would you give to others? And, the, and their answer was find a Kale McCarr. Yeah. That was Landis I, I think Gog. it was Landis Cog. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'll tell you what, Landis Cog is an underrated player because yes. I think a lot of people looked at him as the third wheel with, with Rantanen and McKinnon, but down the stretch, when Landis Cog had looked at it and said, I got to have my knee cleaned up so I'm 100% for the playoffs, and the last date I could do that, it was sometime in March where he just basically, you know, their position was solidified. I'll get my, I'll get it cleaned up so that I'm ready. They weren't, they didn't play great from there to the finish. No. And when he came back, it was different. And yeah. this is not just a, a big body to stand in front of the net. He has got some skill. He's got some grit. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Landis Gog as yeah, a leader you know, and a captain yeah, of that yeah. team. And you know the other thing that's that's about Landis Gog is that he stopped acting like such a jackass during the playoffs. And really all season long. Like he there are times where you watch him play against the Wild, especially Miko Koivu, and he just does the most the dirtiest, you know, cheapest stuff on the ice. He did none of that. Maybe, he played maybe whistle Miko to whistle. brought that out of him. Yeah, no, and Miko has brought that out of others <laughs> as well, and the beat writer. Um, but but look, uh, you know, I mean, there. I don't know. I I just think now that he plays whistle to whistle, he is just one heck of a hockey player. And just getting to talk to him a lot during the playoffs too. Um, you know, 
really, really, really quality leader and, and uh, obviously, a, a, you know, a commendable captain for, for what he did. Uh, Trey Wade yeah. asked me, uh, what's that? No, I was just going to say that I had I had some great conversations with him over the years and actually had some conversations with him about playing against Miko because of the way those two used to go. And he would always talk about Miko with a tremendous amount of respect where it was that he just it was he knew he was in for a battle that night. He knew he was in for a battle goal line to goal line. And and I the point you're making about playing whistle to whistle is valid. Still played a heavy game, though. It wasn't like he started to shy away from things. He still was a feisty guy right in the middle of everything, but just maybe eliminated the after the whistle stuff. I, I think he's a I think he was a huge part of this run for Colorado. Um, Trey Wade asked me, uh, any concerns Russian players will not be allowed to leave Russia? Your silence on this issue is freaking me out. I have a huge story that I've been working on for months that is coming out Friday. You could read that one. Um, you know, teams are concerned, but I honestly think it's going to wind up being just an overblown thing. But, uh, but um, there, there are issues. I mean, there are, there, there are issues. Like a guy like Kirill Kaprizov actually played all last season without a work visa. Same thing with Kevin Fiala, by the way. And that's where there could be issues is when they get to that Moscow border, getting out without that now documentation. That's where teams are really concerned. But they, you know, a lot of people that I talk to um, really find it hard to believe that the Russian government, because of the pride that they have with Russians playing in the NHL, would stop these guys, prevent them from leaving. But it is an absolute concern, and it's going to be a topic that teams are going to be looking for more guidance, more guidance from from the league um, during their immigration meetings at the draft. But that story comes out on Friday. Um, somebody asked me how many more Avs fans did I block on Twitter during the finals. I don't know. They some Avs fans are really conflicted. They enjoyed my coverage during the playoffs. Uh, um, I didn't get a lot oh, of give hate. them time. Just yeah, give them time. Exactly. They'll, they'll be right um, back on the hate wagon. Yeah. Uh, somebody asked about uh, maybe a Dumba trade for JT Miller. You know, the cap, the the years actually kind of line up. Um, you know, that there's still there's still part of me that just wonders. Anthony, if there's still one little thing up Bill Guerin's sleeve to improve up front this offseason, because, I mean, he cannot truly believe that just losing Kevin Fiala's 85 points is going to be a good thing for the roster. Well, I agree with that. And I think his answer today was indicative that when he said, can you make up for it with Marco Rossi? And he just kind of said, well, I don't know. Well, we all know that Marco Rossi's not going to score 85 points this year. So I'm sure he's looking at some options and trying to figure out if there's an economical way, maybe a low-risk, high-reward type veteran out there that might be able to provide a little punch. But I just – there's no way you can trade Matt Dumba for JT Miller right now. There's just no way. Yeah. Um, and last question of the podcast, somebody asked if you've, I've heard that somebody asked if we, either of us have seen Top Gun. It's absolutely kick ass. This person says, I highly recommend it. If you haven't seen it, I haven't seen a movie in a movie theater in about probably about 10, 15 years. Uh, so I haven't seen it. What have you seen? Have you you seen it? I have not seen it yet. No. And this is one that I might try to go see in a theater, but wait for me. I'll go with you. It's so hard to. We were actually, I was just, I played in a charity golf event on Monday to support the United Heroes League, and which is a great event. And the group I was with was asking about Top Gun. And I'd said, you know, I, I want to go see it in a theater, but when it's 80 and pleasant in Minnesota, and my options are sit on my patio, listen to some music, and open a bottle of wine, or go sit inside a theater it's just hard to bring yourself to go to a theater. And so we, we started joking and laughing about that. We talked about Kevin Gordon for a little while because I said, look, like we go to these cities and he goes and sits in a theater We're, we go to Boston. I'm going down to the North end to have dinner. He's going into a theater next door to see a movie. He's already seen seven times. And I just can't bring myself to do that. I, and so, but this is one that I want to go see in a theater just because I've heard it's so good. Yeah, so maybe I'll do it. It hasn't been quite as long for me as it has been for you to see a movie in a theater. I'd say maybe it's been three, four years for me, but and I don't do it often. I do love movies, but just not, I just can't take a night to go 
to go do that when the weather's You're not like, like this. Gore, Gore, Gore will go see like five movies on a road trip. Exactly. He rates our cities. That's how we got on the subject with this group. They were talking about taking a road trip. They were asking me which cities to visit, and we had already talked about Top Gun. And I said, you know, it depends on what you're after, because if you're talking about just the arena, that's different from – for me, it's about the city, the night off the night before, and then the atmosphere in the building. And the night off the night before, I started, I love going to the eastern U.S. cities. And I said, but now, like, that's how I rate a city is, are there great places to catch music after dinner? Are there great dinner places? Are there, can I walk to places from the hotel? Whereas the gym matters to me. Whereas for Gorg, it's how close are we to a movie theater so that he can, as soon as we get in, he can go across the street, and I'm thinking, we're in Boston, and you could go down to the north end, the south end, the waterfront area, whatever, and instead, you can go to a movie in Burnsville, but he decides that that's how he's going to spend his night in Boston, and to each their own, but it just is funny that we just had this conversation on the course on Monday. Um, well, I'll t- uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I just, I agree with you, I just don't know how, like, if if you're in Boston, that you could just go to the movie theater rather than just going out and taking especially to see a movie you've already seen. <laughs> I know it's hilarious. Um, well, hey, uh, this was a fun podcast. Uh, last podcast that we will ever mention the name Kevin Fiala. I bet um, to the UPS driver that uh, came and talked to me today. I'm very sorry I wasn't able to talk to you about the Kevin Fiala trade. <laughs> Literally, the Zoom was starting that second with Bill Guerin. By the way, when when you showed up, if you're listening to this podcast. And if you come here tomorrow, with I'm getting another shipment of wine tomorrow, Anthony. Uh, if it's the same UPS driver, um, just to let you know, we have a 12:30 Zoom with uh, Judd Judd Brackett, and then I have a 1 p.m. podcast with Judd Brackett. So if you come in that window, I can't answer the door. So there you go. This was a fun podcast, Anthony. You think this is the last time we mentioned we mentioned Kevin Fiala? No, I don't. But I think it'll be the last time we talk about it this summer. Yeah, uh, my guess is it's actually not. But, uh, but hey, this is a fun show. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Brock Faber tonight as well. So that story will be up as well tomorrow. And also Kevin Fiala is talking to the LA Kings media as well tomorrow. So Eric Stevens, our Ducks writer, who's going to be on that uh, Zoom, uh, will be doing a story. And we'll tag that to the wild if you're on the athletic, uh, uh, if you're an athletic subscriber. Again, July 11th at Elsie's at 7 p.m. will be our next live show. Thanks to our incredible sponsors, Aquarius Home Services, your local authorized dealer for Connecticut Water Treatments, uh, Tuttles, uh, Royal Credit Union, Less Fee, More Free, Kowalski's, Bosch Law Firm, and Chris Lindell Real Estate. Talk to you next week, Anthony. Sounds good. So much coming out, there's nothing going Finally, for the first time in a year and a half, we're not going to have to talk about Kevin Fiala on every podcast.